on this day, we celebrate again one of the 12 great feasts. This time, the feast we're celebrating is the entrance of the Theotokos into the temple. It's in some ways uh, one of the more unique feasts. It celebrates the first entry of the Theotokos, the mother of our Lord. Theotokos uh, is the Greek, uh, which literally means God bearer. Uh, in her first entrance into the holy temple of God. Uh, and the, um, the significance of this feast, as has been understood by Christians going all the way back to when we first started celebrating this feast, is that in this event, which, you know, at the time would have been fairly unremarkable, uh, but in this event, what you have is the mother of God, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, the temple of the living God herself, or the one who is going to be the temple of the living God, in the sense that God himself will be made flesh inside of her, will be in her, literally, in her womb, has entered into the old temple. And if you were here last night, you heard the um, uh, the, uh, the, the Old Testament readings, which were all about the Old Temple. Or rather, I should say, the first one was about the tabernacle, uh, the second one was about Solomon's Temple, and the third one was about Ezekiel's Temple, which has never been built, but maybe prophetically understood as perhaps, well, I'll get to that in a minute. And in each of the Old Testament readings, we have uh, the, the temple uh, described and presented, and then the glory of God comes upon the temple, and no one is able to enter that temple. One particularly interesting characteristic of this feast is that this phenomenon could only have been accomplished by a female, by a woman. The only way that God could become a man, or rather, perhaps I should say, the way that he chose to become a man was to enter into the womb of Mary in the person of the Logos and be made flesh, be made one of us. And so in honor of the Theotokos, in honor of this uh, amazing incarnational event that was made possible by her simple yes to God, I want to speak to you today about a non-binary orthodox understanding of gender. Now, don't get me wrong here. As a computer scientist, I like binary. Binary is great. It's a system of ones and zeros, which we use in computer programming and, uh, and, and internally in computers uh, to basically represent the switches that a computer is made up of. Uh, you have the one representing the on state of the switch and the zero representing the off state of the switch. That's the simple version. 
The incarnational reality of binary is actually a little more complicated than that because binary has to be represented by electric current. Uh, and you don't want to actually have the electric current completely off for a zero. So what binary ends up representing in terms of the actual electronics inside the computer is actually uh, uh, high states and low states of voltage. So you might have something like uh, 0.8 volts representing a one, and so, and anything above 0.8 volts representing a one, and anything below 0.2 volts representing a zero. Now you'll notice that that leaves some voltage in between. What happens in those states? It turns out that binary, even as implemented in computer science, is not implemented as straightforwardly as you might think. There are moments in the computer when you have intermediate states, indeterminate numbers, as the computer would perceive them. Uh, and in some respects, then, binary is itself not entirely binary. Um, and this does, in some, in some respect, uh, accord with the, um, the biological reality of human sexuality. Without getting into too many details, because I want to keep this family friendly, um, uh, there are situations, for, for most of us, we are either, very plainly, biologically speaking, male or female. Uh, and you can generally determine that pretty clearly, uh, even down to the molecular, le molecular level where we have the XX chromosomes and the XY chromosomes that distinguish the male, male with XY, from the female and XX. Um, so, but of course, even there, that bio our biology is complicated. It doesn't always, uh, it isn't always that clear. There are edge cases. And where, one of the differences between uh, the computer's representation of binary and our Lord's approach to human sexuality is that in the computer, if you have an indeterminate state, something that's neither uh, above the threshold, the high voltage threshold, or, or below the low voltage threshold, that result is thrown out. That's why you have error checking. And really good memory comes with error checking in, 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 embedded in it, but won't get too deep into the hardware. Uh, um, so the, uh, but, but in our Lord's dispensation, nothing is wasted. And our Lord says, about male and female, uh, that there are those who are called to be eunuchs, neither one nor the other, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I'm going to leave that mystery there, because I wanted to talk not so much about sexuality, but about gender, which is something slightly different, but it's all over the place in the discussion in our society, and we don't generally talk about it uh, in, the, in the church. Obviously, the Christian understanding of gender still has a fairly definitive binary. We understand things to fall into two basic categories, masculine and feminine. But those two basic categories 
are something that apply on some level to every single one of us. Things that we represent, that we understand to be masculine attributes or feminine attributes, to belong to the masculine gender or the feminine gender, are necessarily still required of members of the other gender. For example, a standard classical uh, masculine attribute would be strength. And a standard classical feminine attribute might be gentleness. But if you have, there are many, many times when a woman, a female, requires a great deal of strength and may have some forms of strength that are far greater than any man has. And conversely, if you have a male who is absolutely obsessed with strength and has no gentleness, he is barely human. Things like people like Conan come to mind, the barbarian. Uh, 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 the, these, are, these are, it is absolutely essential for us then as human beings that this gender binary not be simply a binary. Not simply apply only to females or only to males. Now, obviously, there will be certain things that are more uh, apparent in one or the other gender and one or the other uh, in, in both males and females. And that's where we that's where we get our concepts of masculine and feminine from. It's also important to say, I, I would say to say to note that there are kind of two basic ways of uh, uh, approaching knowledge, epistemology. Uh, that date back as far as Plato and Aristotle. Uh, that Plato would say that our knowledge comes from the ideal forms. There is an ideal form of everything. So there's this, this masculine ideal and there's this feminine ideal. Uh, at, whereas Aristotle would say, well, you know, there, we kind of just as human beings, we build up our knowledge from the observation uh, of everything. And we kind of start building up categories and then we categorize things eventually, we come up to, to large categories like masculine and feminine. And we build them up and, 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 and eventually come to them. In some respects, it doesn't really matter which one, which kind of, which epistemology you buy into uh, from a Christian perspective. What does matter from a Christian perspective is that when it comes to gender, we must always recognize that our understanding of it is necessarily flawed and limited. Our description of it is always necessarily flawed and limited, whether that be because they are these great platonic ideals that we can't fully understand the essence of, or that we, whether they are Aristotelian uh, social constructs uh, that are necessarily imperfect because they've been come up, they've been, uh, we human beings have come up with them. Uh, doesn't matter. What we do as Christians is, it, with all of knowledge, is approach it with humility, with the understanding that our understanding is always necessarily imperfect. But the basic categories of masculine and feminine 
are actually essential to the Christian faith. We need them. They are a key to our understanding, not only of our relationship between male and female, but of our relationship between God and man. And here's where we get back to the great mystery of the entrance of the Theotokos into the temple. One of the aspects of that mystery that's, that's fascinating to me is just the way the church decides to celebrate it. Because on some level, this hasn't happened yet. The significance of this has not been fully realized at the moment that the Theotokos enters into the temple. She's just any other young Jewish girl coming into the temple for the first time. There's, there are stories that indicate that there might be more to it than that, but the basic historical kernel there is, is, that, is that she came into the temple as a young Jewish girl, as many young Jewish girls would. But for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, as understanding the hand of God always at work in time for our salvation, reaching down out of eternity into time and working in all these circumstances, we, looking back, see the significance of this and we celebrate it. Another thing to think about here is that the significance of this event was actually foretold by the prophets. The prophets talked about what was going to happen on many levels. One of the first, and, and, and one of the first actually ends up being also one of the last. One of the first references to this relationship between God and his people comes in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was, of course, a prophet. And he talks about the children of Israel, the ecclesia, the people of God, what we would have eventually, what we eventually come to understand as the church, as being a young woman found by a king in a ditch, raised up to adulthood and, and, and uh, adorned with beauty, uh, who then goes and without getting too graphic, throws herself on ev any man who, to quote, uh, in, in the manner of, and to quote here the prophet Ezekiel more or less, uh, a donkey in heat. This is the first reference to the people of God seen as a bride chosen by God out of the nations cared for by God so that she might be his bride, the one that he loves in this amazing you know, way that we understand from our own human experience of being male and female, of falling in love, of getting together and working through all that, all the problems of marriage, of, of having kids, the fruit of that love. Uh, um, we have some concept of this. And this is what Ezekiel, in his prophetic word, is leveraging. 
so that we can understand what it means to be in a relationship with God. And Ezekiel's primary focus here is on the infidelity of Israel, the infidelity of the bride of God. But this understanding of the people of God as the bride of God doesn't stop there. It actually is fulfilled in us, the church. Paul is very clear when he talks about us, we, the church, being the bride of Christ. And that we are saved by Christ so that we can be united with him in that amazing mystery. And when he's talking about that, that mystery in, in Ephesians, uh, he, he, which is what we always read in the marriage ceremony, Paul is very clear to say, but I'm actually talking about the relationship between Christ and his church. We all participate deeply in what in the feminine because we are collectively the bride of Christ we are also referred to uh, as the temple of the living god because we have Christ dwelling within us and that is refer that that reference to us as the temple of the living god is both collective and individual Paul uses it to talk about us collectively as the church, as the temple of the living God, and also that our, your body is the temple of the living God. Therefore, honor God with your body. Do not dishonor it by abusing it. This is, and so we are collectively and individually Temples of the living God, just like the Theotokos. C.S. Lewis, when he was coming to an, uh, faith in, in, well, initially uh, theistic faith and eventually uh, the Christian faith, uh, wrote at one point, Run thing, this myth about a dying God. Seems as though it actually happened once. But that could also be said about this mystery as well. Rum thing, this myth about a bride of God. Seems as though it actually happened once. And that the result of this union between God and man was the incarnation of the God-man, the Logos. The word of God made flesh. This is what Mary reveals to us. That the original temple, which was filled with God, to the exclusion of all else, is now superseded in us. God is with us. God is in us. And we need to behave accordingly. This is the great mystery here that this, uh, that 
all of our celebration of the Theotokos and what God has done in and through her, by her, yes, is actually a celebration of what God is doing in and through us as we say yes to God, both individually and collectively. We participate in this receiving God into ourselves, this submissive femininity, if you will. But it is through that that our humanity, in all its complexity, is then incorporated into God's work and God's will. It is as we say yes to God that he is able to work in and through us. That he is able to make us his temple, his bride, his people, his body, his church. And we get to figure out how to live that out in all our human failure and complexity. But that's our goal. That's our purpose. That's our mission in this life is to be filled with God. Is to be a temple of the living God. Is to be the bride of God, united with him, looking to him, loving him. And ultimately to be like Mary, Theotokos, bearers of God, making God manifest to the world through our love for him, through our obedience to him, and through glorifying him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever into ages of ages.